This week on the Tech on Tap podcast, Lawrence Gidkovich of ICAD joins us to discuss how AI imaging is vital in the early detection of breast cancer and how infrastructure plays a huge part in that. Welcome to the Tech on Tap podcast with Justin Parisi. I love NetApp. Oh, yeah. NetApp. I love this company. Zipoc. Zipoc. I love NetApp because it's so funny. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Tech on Tap podcast. My name is Justin Parisi. I'm here in the basement of my house and with me today I have a special guest from ICAD. Uh, Lawrence Gitkovich is here. So Lawrence, what do you do at ICAD and how do we reach you? I'm the technical product manager for ICAD's Profound AI solution. ICAD was one of was the first company to develop deep learning algorithm for multimodality mammography detection. And we use the software to review mammograms and identify regions of interest to help radiologists make sure that they don't miss any cancers and also help them read these images much faster, uh, over a 50% uh, reduction in reading time. So my personal background starts in computer engineering, and I've spent the last 20 years in medical imaging beginning with 11 years in GE Healthcare, working in all of the imaging modalities, and then working on decision support for uh, anesthesiologists to help them make sure they're delivering the right amount of anesthetic drugs at the point of care. And we had models that would help them figure out what the synergistic effect of different drugs was, where, you know, one plus one actually, or one analgesic and one sedative has the impact of 10 or 12, uh, so much more than they expected. And this, you know, was able to really help improve the quality of care. Moving a little bit forward in my career, I spent time in cardiology where we've had uh, algorithms for EKGs that would provide silent second opinions to cardiologists. And EKGs are fairly simple. They're just, you know, lines going up and down. And so we could help make sure that they got the right diagnosis or that if a tech is taking an EKG in most of the time, if the patient needed to be rushed to the uh, emergency department, they knew about it right away. The last five years, I've been in Fujifilm working on enterprise imaging, helping healthcare systems capture, store, and manage vast histories of medical images, uh, making sure that they're available to all clinicians to improve the quality of care with a distinct eye towards the future because it's not, you know, it's great to have the current image available, but if you look at most doctors and how they deliver care, they're often comparing the rate of progress for diseases or trying to see if there's been a change. And so while today, most of today's AI algorithms work on just the current image, one of the really exciting things combining, you know, enterprise imaging and today is being able to look at priors and have the AI algorithm, you know, search through all that vast medical history to help doctors deliver the best quality of care possible. And so, you know, I'm really excited about working for ICAD to, you know, help improve the quality of care for cancer detection. And if anybody wants to reach out to me, uh, I have profiles on LinkedIn and Twitter. Cool. We'll include those in the blog that accompany the show. Um, so it sounds like you're doing a lot of important work over there. I'm curious, you mentioned a 50% reduction in uh, in reading, right? So I, how does one achieve that within this workload? I mean, is it something that's just efficiency in the code, or is it like something that happens in the infrastructure? It's interesting. So ICAD's been around for 20, over 20 years as CAD software. And the way CAD for MAMO used to work 
was that the images would be taken you know, at the MAMO machine uh, and then sent to the CAD software, which would uh, run on it. And this was using older algorithms that would identify regions of interest. And the images of the CAD process would be married up in the pack after the radiologist read the images and then the radiologist could compare and see if the CAD found anything that they had missed. If you look at that overall workflow, the radiologist is reading the images first and then comparing against the CAD. So while CAD had reimbursement, it actually added to the workflow. The way today's algorithms work and get in, uh, integrated into the workflow is that they still go from the gantry, from the MAMO machine directly to the CAD software, and using you know state-of-the-art GPUs, the, cats, the AI algorithms run very quickly in a couple of minutes and deliver the results to the PACs for the radiologist to review while they're looking at the images. And essentially, the results from the AI get superimposed on top of the images that the radiologist is reading. And if you can imagine a, a Where's Waldo cartoon, instead of having to look around and find Waldo, the AI algorithm is really circling Waldo to guide the radiologist to the regions of interest that the AI believes they should focus on. Now, of course, the radiologist is still involved, so they're scanning the entire image. But with 3D MAMOs being very common these days and improving you know, the quality of care, so traditional MAMOs were 2D, so you would just take you know, a couple of pictures. With 3D MAMO, you're taking a lot more images. So you can almost think of like still shots versus video, where you're trying to run through the entire frame. It's a lot more images for a radiologist to read. And when the AI speeds, the AI can speed things up by highlighting the regions that are most important for the radiologist to look at. And that way, they have much more confidence that they're not missing anything. And the AI algorithm is a lot more repeatable to also make sure that they're not missing anything small. So overall, uh, in our reader study, we found, uh, I think the exact number was a 52% reduction in read time. And some of the other impressive results from the, this study were that if you have a general radiologist, when they use the algorithm, they can read at the same level as somebody who specialized in just reading breast mammals. So... We have improvement for general radiologists and reduction in reading time for both of them, as well as specialists. You know, that's one area where you can really cut down on the time is, is an algorithm, but also, you know, just streamlining a lot of the, the processes involved and, and doing things in a different order also can help. Um, but another area that really helps speed things up is this is the infrastructure, and including the storage back end. And Esteban Rubens is here from NetApp to kind of talk to us about that. But first, Esteban... You know, what do you do at NetApp and how do we reach you? Hey, Justin, I'm part of the healthcare team at NetApp. I've been here for a couple of years. I focus on AI and cloud in healthcare specifically. I've been in healthcare IT for quite a few years. I started in enterprise imaging as well, and now work with uh, people in healthcare and provider space, uh, payer space, and life sciences as well. You can reach me at esteban.rubens, that's E-S-T-E-B-A-N dot R-U-B-E-N-S at NetApp.com or LinkedIn. All right, excellent. So, uh, as far as you know, the the infrastructure piece goes, Esteban. You know, what are you seeing with the the AI uh, imaging and you know machine learning pieces of this? Like, how are how are people speeding things up aside from changing how the work is done? Yeah, 
So speaking to what Lawrence was saying, it's really interesting because, of course, we have progress in the algorithms themselves and what computer vision really could do 20 years ago compared to what it can do now. But as you were pointing out, it's the combination of the algorithm uh, sort of back end and the infrastructure that allows us to actually have significant change at the patient care level, right? If you don't, as Lawrence was saying before, before between the available compute, which was mostly CPU based and the ability to feed data into the CPUs, it wasn't really possible to do this real time, right? To, to have the, the inference, if you will, even though they may not have been neural networks, uh, models that were trained with, with uh, other data, labeled data. But now that we have this combination of GPU compute and really fast storage and fast networks too, everything works together sort of synergistically, we can move to that real-time detection. And that's huge because that allows the idea of going beyond artificial intelligence to augmented intelligence. This is the machines working with the clinicians in unison to provide better patient care. And that's kind of the the next revolution. That's what we're starting to to see happen, whereas taking the technology and making it useful for both clinicians and patients. You know, there's something called the quadruple aim that people talk about in terms of where we should be headed in healthcare, which really means let's improve the health of populations. Let's do it more cheaply. Let's improve the quality of the patient experience within the system, as well as improving the experience of clinicians and the, the happiness of clinicians in their jobs. So this is all kind of a great framework to think about technology such as this one. And so if you take imaging, right, that's where things are starting to go. And to hone in something that Lawrence was saying, reimbursement is key. And maybe we can talk about that a little bit because you can have the best technology, you can have the best algorithms, you can have the best infrastructure, but unless there's reimbursement, somebody's getting paid for this, there's really not going to be adoption because everything is driven by whether it's a private health system like we have mostly in the US or public like both Medicare or Medicaid or the VA or the uh, health systems in Kind of most of the rest of the world, like in Europe or Asia so or South America, whatever you want to look at. So um, maybe we can talk about that a little. That's that's really interesting as, as a way to drive adoption and kind of take this and benefit patients directly. So Lawrence, in that same vein, which Esteban's talking about, I mean, can you kind of elaborate on that a bit? You know, how are you seeing that sort of reimbursement take place? Yeah, and that's a great point, actually. We're lucky in a sense that CAT software had been reimbursed for a long time. So the core algorithm that I was mentioning, and that's actually why radiologists have been using CAT for so many years in uh, mammography, because there was reimbursement for it. And now with the AI algorithms, we've actually improved the workflow overall. So it's really a double win that there's reimbursement uh, and there's improvement in workflow. One of the newer algorithms that we just are in the process of updating is one that looks at short-term risk. Many people have heard of long-term uh, of your personalized risk for breast cancer, and it's based on your family history, the BRCA gene, uh, which Angelina Jolie publicized famously. Uh, and there can be many other factors, such as environmental, if you're a smoker, etc. There is currently reimbursement in, in the industry 
or in the market for doing extra screening if you're using one of these public models, such as Tyrocrucic, to identify your risk. What we've been able to do uh, in partnership with the Karolinska Institute, based out of Sweden, which has a huge database uh, of uh, breast cancer images and, and histories, is develop a personalized risk based on the current MAMO. So our algorithm will actually look at the image and see if it can find things that are too small for a radiologist to detect, but are strong indicators of increased risk in the short term. So one of the other things to to be aware of is that many of the cancers that go undetected are what we call interval cancers that show up in between regular screening. In the U.S., most women get mammos on an annual basis after I think it's the age of, after starting at between 40 or 44. In Europe, the screening tends to be every two years, uh, depending on exactly which region. So one of the things that our algorithm can do is help determine personalized risk based on the current images, where the AI algorithm is seeing something that may not be apparent to a radiologist, but is a strong indicator that perhaps a follow-up MAMO uh, or other screening in six months would be warranted. At the moment, though, because it's not based on family history or some of the other commonly accepted metrics for a standard of care, there's no reimbursement for this risk model. So that's something that we're actively working uh, with payers to, uh, to identify and confirm, but it's going to take time for more acceptance. Can you kind of give me a, an, an idea of what acceptance means here? Like, is it just that people don't trust the technology yet or is it something else? No, sorry. When I say acceptance, I, I mean reimbursement by the by the government or, or by the insurance companies. So we've done a number of studies to port the findings for this. The the algorithm, you know, is approved, but it just takes time within the current. And I don't think regulatory is the right term to use within the current payer environment for that reimbursement to be approved and take place. Oh, that's interesting. So I guess it's kind of considered experimental at this point, right? They're not really taking it as a, you know, as a serious aspect of this. They have to do a little more research and, you know, get, I guess, more results to kind of make it fully approved. Is that, is that kind of in line with what you're saying here? Yeah, not exactly. I mean, it's an approved model. It's just not part of the current standard of care. Okay. So that's one of the challenges to get it, you know, considered as part of the standard of care. And uh, it's interesting. I have another product that was part of my portfolio in the past. Uh, when I was in cardiology, we had a product that was developed by a company called Cambridge Heart. It was an add-on to a stress test. And it was developed out of, I don't remember if it was Harvard or MIT, but essentially it was an algorithm that worked with your stress test. It used separate electrodes and could give you a prediction of your chance of sudden cardiac arrest, you know, which obviously is something very concerning. And they had actually worked to get reimbursement for this test. So it was approved, it was paid for. One of the, and there were two key challenges with it. And uh, the company, by the way, has since gone bankrupt, as far as I know, isn't available anymore. And it's a little frustrating because it did have reimbursement but one of the challenge, there are two challenges. One, the electrodes had very short lifespan, uh, shelf life, so you had to use them up quickly. And two, if you got this predictor of sudden cardiac arrest, there was no clear 
guidelines for what you could do to mitigate it. So you have the standard, you know, lifestyle changes, but it wasn't very specific uh, at the time. So a lot of doctors go, would look at the test and go, okay, I have a patient who has a high risk. What do I tell them differently? And so they were reluctant to share it with it. In our case, with the breast cancer risk screening, there is a guidance in that, okay, you have a higher risk of breast cancer, so additional screening is warranted. Again, the challenge with that is you can create extra anxiety for a patient, so that's something that has to be mitigated and put into context, especially when this increased risk may be only you know, a couple of percent, but when you're talking about you know, a couple of percent over all the women who get breast cancer screenings on an annual basis, that's a lot of additional overall anxiety with uh, a late breast cancer diagnosis that can be reduced. So there's definitely value here, but there's also a lot of work that needs to be done in terms of making sure we're positioning it properly and not adding additional anxiety or uh, anxiety to the patient, but really streamlining the patient's experience and making sure that everybody understands you know, the benefits that this type of technology can offer. I just want to add a quick thing here. It's interesting you mentioned Karolinska Institute because that's a, a joint customer from NVIDIA and NetApp, right, for our ONTAP AI system. They are using it for imaging. They have a, a, a lab that's called the SMILE, the Stockholm Medical Imaging Laboratory, that is working kind of in basic research for uh, machine learning in radiology, sort of medical imaging, and, and other areas. So that's uh, kind of another example of, of how this works. And then one other thing that uh, kind of came to mind when you were talking, Lawrence, was anxiety for patients, uh, something you mentioned. What about anxiety for clinicians uh, in terms of, uh, well, you, you've seen kind of the examples of uh people saying we better stop training radiologists because computers are just going to do all this work and sort of crazy things like that. You guys have navigated that for, you know, a couple of decades now. So how, how do you work or how does ICAD work with clinicians to allay those fears and kind of convey that this is just another technology that is making lives of patients and clinicians better? Yeah, that's a great question. And that was a big fear among many radiologists a couple of years ago, uh, in particular, as AI was gaining more press uh, and prevalence, and there was concern that the AIs were going to replace them. And I think now, you know, most radiologists have come to the realization, and even, you know, those of us developing the technology, AI isn't going to replace the radiologist anytime soon. It's just going to augment them and really make their lives easier. For MAMO in particular, I don't know the exact number, but the majority of MAMOs that are read are clear. There's nothing there. And if the AI can help the radiologist automatically clear those exams that there's nothing to find, it gives the radiologist more time to spend on the ones that are of higher concern or have higher likelihood that, you know, something, there's something for them to look at. So if they have an hour to spend, instead of dividing it evenly between all the mammos that they're reading, if they can focus most of that time on the ones that are of higher risk, uh, where there's a larger, higher probability that there's something for them to find in them, 
spend much less time on the ones that are clear and have nothing abnormal in them, that's really helping them get through their job, feel more satisfied, knowing that they're helping more patients, and not waste time on things that don't add as much value to their day. The other really big change, particularly with mammos, is the switch from 2D to 3D, where the 3D, as I mentioned before, is generating hundreds of images compared to the 2D, which was much faster to read. So 3D mammography offers much higher resolution to detect more cancer. So it's improving the quality of care. But at the same time, it's taking a lot longer for uh, radiologists to read. When they take advantage of AI, that can help decrease that read time overall. The other thing that's key when you're reading mammos is comparing today's mammo versus prior mammos. So where your point about having the infrastructure in place, if there's one thing everybody knows about radiologists is that they hate clicks and they hate reading. It's probably a universal truth there. And so the faster that the PAC system can read the images, the prior images from disks to display them and keep everything at the fingertips of the radiologist, that makes everybody happier and more satisfied. So with the radiologists and AI... I don't know much about being a radiologist, but I would imagine that they get a lot of work that comes through and and they might run into backlogs. Does this help eliminate some of those backlogs of things they have to analyze and also increase the accuracy as well, but, you know, mostly just speed things up so they can get more done? Yes. I mean, all of the above. So one of the things the algorithm comes up with is an overall case score. And the case score is essentially a proxy for the risk of cancer in that particular study. And so looking at that, the radiologists or, and many PAC systems are incorporating the case score on their own uh, work list. So this helps the radiologists prioritize which are cases that we should spend more time and which are the ones that you know, very likely don't have anything at all to do with them. One of the other things the algorithms can, can help with is breadth density classification. There are a lot of public awareness campaigns going on since we are in Breast Cancer Awareness Month about breast density and higher breast density often masking the uh, artifacts in, in the mammo, making it harder for the, the radiologist to read and review. So there are a few things. One, depending on who the radiologist is reading, a woman's breast may switch from higher density to lower density from year to year, when in fact, the actual breast tissue probably hasn't changed too much. It's just a subjective uh, interpretation. So the algorithm can help provide a little more consistency to that classification. And if that appears in the work list, it can also help the radiologist identify which ones are the denser breasts that I may need to spend more time on. One of the other things that's common in breast cancer reading, and this isn't something I was aware of since, you know, in my family, the results have often come in the mail like a week or so after. Many breast cancer centers actually will do real-time reads where while the patient is getting the scan, immediately after the scan, while they're getting dressed afterwards, the radiologist will get the images and be able to do the read right away. And so having the infrastructure to support that real-time processing for the AI algorithms and delivering the results for the radiologist before the patient leaves uh, is a huge benefit so that if the patient needs an additional screening, such as a ultrasound or MRI, or perhaps even a biopsy, 
they're able to do that on the same visit, which decreases the need for a return visit at a later date, as well as the time lag that adds anxiety to the patient. So Esteban, uh, you know, we we do have a, a, a NetApp spin to this, right? So I mean, what sort of NetApp solutions are we showing, you know, these types of workloads? Like, what are we what are we trying to put into these environments? And, and how are we helping accelerate these jobs to finish faster? Because as we know, with any sort of cancer screening and, and machine learning piece, time is going to be of the essence, you know, to make sure we get a, a quick and accurate diagnosis. Sure. Yeah. Great question. There are two phases in, in AI. You have the training phase and the inference phase for training. So companies such as ICAD are going to be doing training with uh, image data sets. That's kind of table stakes, fast compute, fast storage. That's what we bring to the table with AFF, uh, the ability to very easily and transparently tear things off that you don't need immediately. So Fabric Pool, it works very well. So you can have, you know, these are large images, right? Yeah. In general, Mammal is high definition, uh, can be, I don't know, 4,000 by 4,000 pixels. You know, Lars, correct me if I'm wrong, but, you know, it, it's, it's much more than your CT or MR. And then when you go to breast homosynthesis, the 3D MAMO, that's dozens of images probably, right? So it's a lot of data. So you get to hundreds of terabytes or even petabytes pretty quickly. Now, you don't necessarily need everything at all times on Flash for, for training uh, neural networks. So that ability kind of overall, the idea of, of the the... You know, being able to move data seamlessly and quickly is is really good for this kind of environment. So uh, Fabric Pool and everything that goes with tiering, whether it's on-prem to cloud, you know, different companies do things in a slightly different way. Uh, so again, as I said, those are the table stakes or fast storage, fast networking, fast compute, you know, our joint product with NVIDIA, the ONTAP AI, we can do it in a private cloud, in the public cloud. So great. What we also have is what goes beyond that, such as our API integrations into, for instance, Python. And that is very unique to NetApp. So giving the ability to data scientists to do things programmatically from Python or uh, Kubeflow pipelines or uh, you know several other environments that they typically work on, such as Jupyter Notebooks. So Life is easier for IT. Life is easier and better for data scientists. Data scientists are in high demand. They really have a lot of work with data wrangling. They spend most of their time wrangling data and not doing data science. So we bring this type of uh, add-on, which uh, is, again, a unique value proposition for us. So if you look at the... And the, what I like actually is that these are uh, open source, right? You can go to GitHub and search for NetApp and you can find these things there. Of course, they work with ONTAP, so it's like you're going to use them elsewhere, but that code is available. And uh, you can also visit ONTAP, uh, sorry, NetApp.io, which is kind of the uh, single source for all our new technology and, and open source projects. Uh, if you are interested in containers, for instance, that is the place to go. So we really focus on that extra mile, right? You know, giving people the ability 
to get more from their infrastructure, not just focus on, yeah, get fast storage, but do more with it, be more efficient. And of course, with our data fabric, the ability to move things around in a hybrid multi-cloud world. So it's really kind of interesting and certainly one of the main reasons I came over to NetApp because we can deliver so much more value going beyond what people sometimes think of, well, it's infrastructure, you know, fine, you do the, the storage piece, but we do so much more that is really quite exciting. So Lawrence, you know, in your role, how often do you, like, honestly, how how often do you spend time thinking about things like storage or networking or, or is or, you know, your focus is primarily on the data right so my focus is on the data and really the interfaces with other systems so getting the information from the gantry into our system process or from the pack system as the case may be and then sending results out back to the pack uh, and possibly getting you know interfacing with the ehr as well the uh Interesting thing, the way our software currently works is that we're really just working on the current images. But as we look into the future, there's going to be a lot more importance placed on getting some of those prior images as well and getting them quickly. You know, as I mentioned, if we're talking about doing a real-time read while the patient's in the room, you know, having access to 10 years worth of MAMO images, which is what a radiologist today may, you know, pull up or, or even more than that that can really help a radiologist determine, is this something that's you know, changed over time? Is there a slow growth that's progressing? Or is it something that's benign? So having that processing infrastructure in place, and that is something that many of the larger customers are looking at, being able to centralize it and have shared access with the uh, GPUs, which you know is a key factor in you know, having the the algorithms run as quickly as possible. So yes, infrastructure is definitely something that our customers, you know, are interested in, that, you know, as they help formulate the best approach for designing their data centers and cloud stru- strategies into the future. Yeah, and I guess my question was more of, you know, if, if you're ever involved in decisions with infrastructure, if a storage guy comes to you and starts talking to you about IOPS and SSDs and, you know, backend components, do you kind of glaze over or, you know, what are you most interested in hearing when somebody comes to you trying to pitch a solution? You know, what are you, what are you trying to get out of it? So uh, I'm trying to help them understand the needs. It's interesting because in my current role right now at ICAD, this hasn't been as much of an issue in my prior role at Fujifilm, where I was focused on the VNA, which is the central storage archive for you know medical imaging, storage infrastructure was a much bigger focus uh, and conversation piece. And that's where, to be honest, we would bring in experts uh, like Esteban to help guide that discussion. So Esteban, you know, similar question for you, you know, on the on the opposite side. So when you're talking to somebody like Lawrence, again, you don't want to start boring them with the details. How are you approaching these conversations? I'll say kind of the same that Lawrence was saying. We focus on the business need. We focus on problems and solving problems that they may have. So we don't really want to be talking, as you said, about IOPS or gigabytes per second as much as, you know, I'm a geek, so I love that stuff. But yeah, it's has a, a limited appeal. So it's really about, okay, we understand you're uh, trying to bring a product to market. What what pain points do you have? What what are the barriers, right? Are, are you unable to 
uh, get them to market quickly enough because you can't train your models. Is data mobility a problem? Is uh, integration into existing workflows a problem? And how can we help? And and really beyond the storage, right? We can do more than I'll just say in, in air quotes just the storage. So it it's uh, and that that's why we have a healthcare team at NetApp because we understand what healthcare customers are thinking about, whether it's the provider side or an ISV like ICAD. So it's really a pretty laser sharp focus on business problems and finding solutions to those as opposed to, hey, we have this really cool technology, technology let's figure out a, a way in which we can use it. You know, that's definitely not what we do. So Lawrence, as far as this all goes, I mean, you know, I know data management is probably a key component of what you're doing. What are some of the challenges you face when trying to manage such large subsets of data? Some of the challenges involve deciding how much of it to keep on fast storage versus how much can go into the archive, whatever that is. You know, from a, a PAX and VNA perspective, many customers have been keeping data for years. A lot of them, you know, we're looking into the VNAs in particular to help them purge data because by law, you only have to store in medical images for seven to 10 years, depending on the specific jurisdiction type of imaging, uh, maybe a little more if it's pediatric images. You know, many years ago, at this point, a lot of customers were looking at purging their old data. Uh, thankfully, many didn't actually bite the bullet on that. These days, a lot of customers realize that there's a lot of value in those older images for developing AI algorithms uh, and also for AI algorithms and, and doctors to use in, in diagnosing disease. So the current talking points with storing medical imaging is more around optimizing your storage infrastructure to store the highest value images on you know, the fastest storage and moving some of the lower value images to cheaper storage that may have lower performance characteristics, but still making sure that the right image is available to the radiologist, to the doctor, to the AI algorithm when it's needed. So really optimizing that infrastructure is something key. And that's more from my uh, days working on DNA. Now that I'm working on the AI, AI algorithm side of it, Again, having access to those images and not just the images, but also the metadata that surrounds it. So some of the AI algorithms can be tuned based on characteristics of a specific uh, imaging device. So, you know, a hologic gantry may produce images a little differently than a GE gantry or a Siemens, etc. And so having access to those specific types, the protocols used, can help in the development of the algorithms and also in the application of the algorithms to make sure that we're optimized for sensitivity and specificity. Overall, there's a lot that the infrastructure can help with to make sure that the algorithms and the clinicians are able to operate at peak efficiency. So Esteban, you know, with that in mind, what sort of things do you position, you know, feature-wise with ONTAP or product lines such as, you know, storage grid? Like, what are you seeing or what are you, what are you delivering to these, these customers? Like, what are you trying to suggest to solve these problems like data management in, in large data sets? Well, before getting into the product specifics, I, I just 
I, I have to point out the great uh, sort of dovetail that, that we have there for Data Fabric, right? What Lauren said is basically having the right data in the right place at the right time. And that's what we do with Data Fabric. So that's always the foundation of every discussion because it really doesn't matter whether you're talking to an ISV or a clinical user or a research institution. That's always the case, especially when you add cloud into the mix and, and the ability to go to any cloud that they want. So that that really will be the departure point. And then things like uh, CloudSync, uh, things like uh, ransomware are huge, especially when you're so dependent on your data for product development. So SnapLock has become a, a really uh, kind of all-encompassing discussion because people are really concerned. I mean, it, it's more of a not if, but when type of discussion that people are going to get attacked by either ransomware or some other kind of malware. So it's, of course, there are teams focused on prevention, but given that that's not our focus, we, we can do some of that. Certainly we can be, you know, with cloud insights and so on, we, we can look at uh, early warnings, but the idea of a very quick remediation, that's really important. And, you know, a lot of these images have been annotated by experts, by other doctors. And so they're basically irreplaceable. So it's um, extremely important to make sure that they're they're never compromised uh, either by being inaccessible or hijacked in any way. And then um, the exciting other additions to our portfolio, like Spot, right? You, you, you're talking about training models and maybe bursting up the cloud because you have some on-prem infrastructure, but that's not going to take care of everything. So that ability to control cloud costs and things like our native uh, services with AWS, like FSx ONTAP or ANF, Azure NetApp Files, those are extremely interesting because people want simple solutions that allow them to kind of make cloud more manageable, right? So simplicity, uh, cost control, those are things that they're not really able to get elsewhere. So those are really, really significant contributions we can make when when we talk to really any customer. So it's great that we keep innovating and adding to the portfolio because it's things that uh, a lot of people are not even aware of, right? So people who think they know NetApp uh, are just not able to keep really pace with the innovation and, and the introduction of new things that we have. So it makes for very interesting discussions for sure. That's really key is having availability of the infrastructure. You know, healthcare is a 24-7 profession uh, and expectation from society. Right. And, you know, the current pandemic has really brought that to light where you need to have resources available, both, you know, personnel and the equipment to support them. And so healthcare is very sensitive to having, you know, 100% or 99%, uh, 99.999% uptime availability with software uh, operating and availability of images for the doctors to use in treatment uh, decisions. And so having the mixture of on-prem, the cloud, that, that's always a key concern is what happens if our connection to the cloud goes down. Um, and I, I don't really want to 
get too deep into that because, you know, data centers typically aren't on-prem these days either. So it's all networking, but really having that infrastructure and the redundancy in it is very important to providers. Lawrence, as far as, you know, your, your role goes, what do you do? What are you seeing in terms of data sharing across different organizations? Is that something that's common? And if so, how do you manage that? I'll be honest, right now, many organizations are not really sharing data. Generally, it's sort of interesting. The information or the images really belong to the patients, and the organizations or healthcare institutions that capture the images store and manage them and you know protect them. Uh, but unless it's an academic research institution, Generally, most organizations never ask the patient for the rights to use the images for research purposes or to share them with other facilities or doctors. So a lot of these images, that there's huge amounts of images that exist. Most of it's locked away and current laws actually prevent them from being shared or used for research purposes which when you make the comparison to our financial information, you know, many of us were exposed with a number of high profile breaches in recent years. So that information is used to mine and create, you know, financial profiles for other companies to use to market information to us. And here you have all this healthcare information, which could be used to develop treatments to prevent disease, detect disease and treat it. And that's all locked away and prevented by law from being used. So that's my personal frustration uh, with the state of the industry. But in terms of sharing information, there have been, as I mentioned, or as I started with, a lot of academic uh, institutions, when you first go in for treatment, they'll ask you for your consent to use your images or use your medical records for that purpose. And many people, thankfully, you know, uh, approve of that. And that's where there's a lot of partnerships getting together. A lot of the major cloud vendors have created partnerships with some of the leading institutions uh, and a lot of AI companies also, and I'm not going to name any names here, but have rights to use specific institutions or multiple institutions' images to market them to other companies for use in developing AI algorithms, etc. And at ICAD, we're fortunate to have excellent relationships with many providers who are collecting images, sharing them with us for us to use in our ongoing algorithm development and refinement. So this is definitely something where I, I think it would be great for the industry to improve, but there's still a lot of opportunity for that improvement as well. Yeah, data sharing is a nightmare worldwide, especially in the U.S. because of our fragmented healthcare system. And uh, there are different approaches to solving that problem. One of them that uh, was really created within the AI community is federated learning, where you don't actually have to share the data. You can train data locally and then share the trained models. And then you basically can merge a bunch of trained models to get uh, a model that's trained with everything without actually moving the data that also works well in Europe, where the restrictions as to where patient data, PHI can can live, you know, it can't, can't move beyond national borders. So there are some ways in which uh, the, we, we can work through those sharing problems. It's still very nascent. The technology is there. There's um, 
homeomorphic encryption. There's the ability basically to encrypt data and then use encrypted data for training uh, models. So you, you have that protection. There's different levels of um, de-identification, what some people call anonymization, although it's questionable whether you can really anonymize uh, imaging data. You can certainly not anonymize other types of data like genomic data is, you know, by definition, personal. So it, we're, we're in an interesting stage in which we're still really suffering from that lack of sharing. But at the same time, we have a bunch of technologies that will help solve that problem without forcing anyone to actually reveal that data if they don't want to. So the next few years should be interesting as more and more uh, similar technologies go get to the adoption stage. And ultimately, it's about benefiting patients and improving patient care. The more data, you know, with the current technology we have with deep learning, the more labeled data you have, the better. And so anything that we can do to train models with more, better labeled data, more representing uh, of more diverse populations to try to to prevent models from being biased, even though, of course, there's always going to be biased because humans are biased and models are just a reflection of humans. But at the same time, if you increase diversity in your training data, then the models are going to reflect that as well. So it's uh, it, it may be frustrating, but at least there's a, a bit of a, a light at the end of the tunnel. You raise an interesting point about de-identifying information, uh, the images, because there are ways to de-identify medical images so that theoretically they could be shared and used for training. But the challenge is that a lot of that de-identification involves removing any hint at PHI. And so you may need to remove, you know, the patient's age, the patient's gender, ethnicity, et cetera, which de-identifies it and makes it, you know, more shareable. However, that also removes some of the critical information that's needed in developing these algorithms, just because you do need to have some of that information to make sure that the algorithm is, you know, properly tuned for those specifics. So this is a big challenge in developing algorithms, protecting patient information within the industry. And unfortunately, there are solutions, but there's nothing ideal out there right now. So Lawrence, you know, just to kind of reemphasize, you know, the importance of AI and machine learning with this type of you know research data, what sort of success rates are we looking at? Like how effective is this in detecting breast cancer or other, other forms of disease? Like how far have we come with that? The latest version of our algorithm actually is showing an 8% improvement in sensitivity, a 7% reduction in the rate of recalls. So that's the number of times where a radiologist would see something in the image, call the patient back for an additional screening, which during that lag time can cause uh, increased anxiety. So we've actually seen a 7% reduction in the need to do that. 10% improvement in specificity and up to a 1% improvement in sensitivity. So we're really helping the radiologists identify more breast cancers more accurately. And that's really having a positive impact on the lives of many, many patients. Yeah. And, and it's not just about accuracy. It's also about speed. Because, I mean, when you're detecting cancers, that is probably the, the key component of recovering is catching it early enough. Exactly. And so the more cancers that you detect on the first screening, as opposed to waiting a year, 
that's less time that the cancer has had to develop, grow, easier to treat. So early detection of cancers is really critical and your recovery rate is much better the earlier the cancer is detected. So I, I imagine that this is like, you know, working on something that's important like this that helps literally save lives is really fulfilling. And, you know, I think that the work that you guys are doing is extremely important. Um, so, so Lawrence, again, if, if people wanted to reach out to you and learn more about what ICAD does or, you know, simply what you're doing, how do they do that? So you can find me on my LinkedIn profile, which is looks in the blog flow, uh, or on my Twitter profile. And just to add a personal note to that, my mom passed away from cancer a number of years ago that wasn't detected as early as I believe it should have been. And so this is really, you know, personal to me to helping improve the detection rates and making sure other people don't have to go through that anguish. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, we, I think we've all been touched in some way or another by someone who's either had or recovered from cancer. So it is very top of mind for, for most people, I would imagine. And, and you know, I'm sorry to, to hear that with your mother, but I'm glad to know that you're working to improve the lives for everybody else that may be affected by this. Esteban, um, how do we reach you? You can email me at esteban.rubens at netup.com or uh, through LinkedIn. It's probably the best way. My last name is Rubens, R-U-B-E-N-S. All right, Esteban, Lawrence, thanks so much for joining us today and talking to us all about this very important research for Breast Cancer Awareness Month. Thanks again. All right, that music tells me it's time to go. If you'd like to get in touch with us, send us an email to podcast at netup.com or send us a tweet at netup. As always, if you'd like to subscribe, find us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or via techontappodcast.com. On behalf of the entire Tech on Tap podcast team, I'd like to thank Lawrence Gitkovich of ICAD and Esteban Rubens for joining us today. As always, thanks for listening. Oh, yeah. Is it just me that's getting off on this? Oh, yeah.